1: He is the only golfer to win three straight U.S. Open championships, and if it weren't for a fourth-place finish in 1902, he would have won five in a row. Not even Ben Hogan, Jack Nicklaus, or Tiger Woods ever won three straight U.S. Open championships. Yet, when the name Willie Anderson is mentioned, few in the world of golf have ever heard of him. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, Willie Anderson. This is Sports
0: Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now here's your host, Warren Rogan.
1: Welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I sure hope you're enjoying these podcasts as much as I'm producing them. It's been a lot of fun so far, and the stories we've heard, the personalities we've learned about, and the guests we've had have been fantastic. And today's no different. Joining me on today's show is Tony Parker. A little more soft-spoken than many of my previous guests, Tony is the historian at the World Golf Hall of Fame and Museum in St. Augustine, Florida. As always, before we get to today's podcast, just a little bit of housekeeping. First, a big thank you to Henry R. from New Jersey and Jack K. from Las Vegas for their continued support. If you'd like to support Sports Forgotten Heroes, please visit our website, sportsfh.com. That's sportsfh.com. There, you can learn how to show your support, sponsor a show, or even learn how to ask a question of a future guest. We have some super guests lined up over the next several weeks, so if you'd like to find out more, visit SportsFH.com. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Facebook or on Twitter, at Heroes. I'd also like to thank my friends at HearthCast and Hungry Cliff for their continued support and guidance as well. Now, without further ado, here's my interview with Tony Parker about one of golf's and sports Forgotten Heroes. Willie Anderson. As we head towards golf's final major and look back on the year in golf I think it's fair to say that the game has taken a significant turn when it comes to a single golfer dominating the fairways. Think about it. The game has evolved. There was a time when Bobby Jones dominated the fairways. Then there was Walter Hagen and Gene Sarazen Through the 40s and 50s, the headlines were grabbed by Sam Snead and Byron Nelson and, of course, Ben Hogan. And then Arnold Palmer came along, turned the game into must-watch TV, and he was soon joined by Jack Nicklaus and then Lee Trevino and Tom Watson. More recently, you had Greg Norman and Nick Faldo and, of course, Tiger Woods. But over the last five years or so, household names have not necessarily won major tournaments. Heck. Brooks Kepka won this year's U.S. Open, hardly a household name. Winning just one major tournament, for some, is a career. Paul Azinger only is one major. Same with Tom Kite, Corey Pavin, and Jim Furyk. So, how is it that a guy can win four U.S. Open championships and be the only golfer in history to win three in a row and not be a household name? How is it that you can win four U.S. Open championships and most golf fans have never even heard of your name? On this edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes, along with Tony Parker, historian at the World Golf Hall of Fame and Museum in St. Augustine, Florida, we're going to tell you about the only man to ever win three consecutive U.S. Open championships and one of only four men to win four. The others being Bobby Jones, Ben Hogan, and Jack Nicklaus. Today, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to look back on the career of Willie Anderson. And joining me now is Tony Parker. Tony, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes.
0: Glad to be part with you.
1: So, first, tell me about what you do at the World Golf Hall of Fame and Museum in general. (laughs)
0: Well, that's an awful big question. (laughs) Well, I'm a historian here, so uh, I'm one who uh, helps and write all the the history. Uh, We archive the history of the game here and the great people who've made it great. Um, But my job is to tell the story and to share the story of, as you say, some of the forgotten heroes and uh, uh, the history of the game of golf. Of course, we have 35,000 square feet of exhibition space here in the museum so we uh we fill that with artifacts and mainly stories i'm a storyteller uh, plus i get to uh answer a lot of questions from a lot of people who come in here or call or uh email about certain aspects of the history of the game and so i i'm kind of um always about uh talking about the history of the game and what it is and what it means so here we go
1: all right that sounds great and i'm really looking forward to this so On this podcast, Willie Anderson. Most fans of Sports Forgotten Heroes have likely never even heard of him. What made him such a great golfer, especially when it came to playing in the U.S. Open?
0: Well, I'll tell you, he uh, uh, took up the game quite early. At the age of 11, he was a caddy uh, over in uh, North Berwick in Scotland, which is where he's from. Uh, Then he was an apprentice clubmaker, as most pros were at the time. And at age 16, he immigrated uh, in, to the United States and uh, took the job as a pro uh, at uh, Misquahamacut uh, Golf Course in uh, Rhode Island. In uh, 1898, he uh, is named pro at Baldur's Raw. So he's a young man, but he's already known for the quality of his game and the quality of his swing. He was, he was a compact individual. Strong shoulders, he had what we called the the St. Andrews swing, which is a little bit more of a flat swing, with a Varden grip where you had the finger overlapping. Uh, But he was a a player, didn't miss plays.
1: Let, Let me ask you this. Obviously, no one listening ever saw him play. Can you tell me about his game? What were his strengths and weaknesses? What part of his game was his strongest and what part was his weakest?
0: Well, I mean, that's kind of hard to say because if you, if you listen to certain people, Gene Saracen was asked one time about uh, how would he get out of a bunker, and Saracen said, well, Willie Anderson never got in a bunker. Uh, so the quality of his shots, I mean, he was straight down the fairway. And, and the beauty of his game was he was proficient with all types of equipment. I mean, he's the only player to win the U.S. Open using two different types of balls, the old gutta percha or the gutty, which he won in, uh, used in 1901 when he won, in 1903, he used the Haskell ball, the first uh, rubber core wound ball. Uh, so, you know, he uh, he adapted his game. And it's funny, his personality was one. When he was on the golf course, you couldn't tell if he was playing good or bad. He just never showed any emotion. Of course, off the golf course, completely different story. But on the golf course, he was all about the game. And uh, and to be honest with you, if, if you read some of the comments that writers made at the time, uh, there was no weakness of his game. If there was any at all, it would be in his putting. But uh, from tee to green, no. Uh, they said he was as good as anybody who ever played the game.
1: So so let's examine that a little bit further. He played, you know, the gutta percha ball, which we've all heard about. But he also played clubs that aren't a part of golf today, you know, Everybody plays wedges and hybrids, but they use mashies and brassies. Tell me about the equipment that was used back then. Right, okay, Well, you're talking about hickory shafted clubs
0: and uh, iron or steel heads on, on the irons as such. The putters were either uh, uh, hardwood or iron or, believe it or not, aluminum. Uh, and they were more like mallet putters, those were but you had the persimmon heads and, and hickory shafts. You could work the ball, usually no more than seven clubs in your bag, uh, because uh, because of the torque, you could really shape the ball right, left, and way you wanted to work it. Uh, and much, I don't want to say a slower swing, because these guys hit powerful, um, but more controlled swings, let's put it that way. Um, and and oh, I'll throw out something that uh, I'm sure your listeners have, have probably never heard. You know, Nowadays, you see Arnold Palmer's name on golf clubs, or you see Jack Nicklaus' name on golf clubs. Well, Willie Anderson was the very first uh, individual to have his autograph on Woods, uh, Worthington golf clubs. Uh, so he was the first example of autographed clubs in America. That was Willie Anderson. So at the time, he was not an unknown. He was very well known. Uh, but as you say, he's... His uh, legacy has been overtaken by Bobby Jones, Francis Willemette, Eugene Saracen, Ben Hogan. I mean, you know, all the way to Walter Hagen. Uh, but he was the guy who started it all, and uh, he absolutely dominated when he played. Now, not only did he win four U.S. Opens, but there was another uh, competition that was considered a major at the time. The, was Western. the Western.
1: Yeah, the Western. Won four of those as well. Why do you think we overlook Willie Anderson? Uh, I don't know.
0: I mean, he moved around quite a bit. I mean, he he was pro at 10 different golf clubs in the space of 14 years. He died very young. He was 31 years old when he passed away. Um, but then, then again, he was right at that, the, the turn of the century when you have golf becoming really popular, amateurs are, are much more in vogue than the professionals. Professionals considered pretty much, um, the working men as such. Um, and so you you have him who who wins, and he was an outstanding golfer, but short lived, kind of like Bobby Jones in the sense that you know Bobby retired when he was twenty eight, but he he was still a presence. Well, after Willie died in nineteen uh, ten, uh, then you have the immediate rise of Francis Womet in nineteen thirteen, and Willie is overlooked and he's forgotten.
1: Hmm, interesting, you know he won his first U.S. Open in nineteen o one at the Myopia Hunt Club near Boston. But it wasn't easy. After 72 holes, he was tied with Alex Smith, so a playoff was to take place. But unlike today's game, the tournament was put on hold a few days, so the members of Myopia could play during the weekend. Tell me about how tournaments were scheduled and played back then, and tell me about the playoff and the fact that Anderson had dug himself such a deep hole, but later would pull out a most improbable victory.
0: Well, he did. in in 1901, uh, he was he was five strokes down with five holes to play, and uh, and he comes back and he shoots four, 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 four to defeat Alex Smith, uh, who actually came in second not only at Myopia in 1903, but also at Myopia in 1905 came in second to uh, to uh, uh, Willie Anderson, but he made a great comeback from there and uh, uh, just consistent. Like I say, he was he was a a determined individual, I guess would be the nice way to put it. And I think Willie Anderson, it wasn't so much that he uh, uh, enjoyed the win so much is that he hated to lose. And so when a charge <laughs> was neat, uh, he made a charge. 1902 was tough for him. Uh, he went into the final hole, one stroke in the lead, and uh, the gentleman, uh, Joe Lloyd, actually eagled the 18th to beat him by one stroke on the last hole. So, so that, he could he could have actually
1: won five in a row.
0: Exactly right. Exactly right. It's interesting because in, from 1897 to 1910, he won the U.S. Open four times, one time second place, one time third place, two times fourth place, three times fifth place. So 11 out of the 14, he was in the top five. That is not bad. That's domination.
1: True domination. What was it like to play golf back then? And And I mean in a – in the sense of being a touring professional, especially for a guy like Anderson, who it appears as if that's what he wanted to do, but he also yeah. had to work to make a living. So he was a club professional as well. What was yeah. life back? What was life like back then for a golf well, it professional?
0: Was, it was it was a, a golf professional, and and there's a, I draw a real clear distinction between professional golfer and golf professional.
1: Exactly.
0: I mean, I think, I think Walter Hagen was the first American professional golfer. He made his living playing golf. But before that, because there wasn't that much in prize money, I mean, you're talking first place might be $150. But again, $150 in 1901 is, is a pretty substantial amount. But they still had to live. And so they would do that by teaching, by becoming a head pro, by teaching golfers. And remember, at that time, it's just when. Uh, we call it the golden age. That's when uh, golf is just taking off in America. Uh, A lot of golf courses, well, St. Andrew's golf club in Yonkers, New York is considered the oldest continuous club, 1888. So we're talking within roughly the first decade um, of golf really taking off in America. You've got five or six golf clubs by 1898. There's a a dozen or so. Uh, And then it's really going. So you, you have these Scottish immigrants coming over, which Willie Anderson was one. Uh, They, the, their main thing was making golf clubs for those who were coming into the game and then teaching them how to play. And for Willie, uh, like I say, he moved around quite a bit. But the wintertime, he usually came down to Florida, and he'd do a lot of exhibition matches and spent time down here teaching folks who would actually come south for the winter, the, the Snowbirds, and uh, and then go back north to wherever whatever club he was at, whether it was Apowalmas or um, Baltus Rawl or the Philadelphia Cricket Club. Uh, I mean, he was at the top clubs, so he was definitely uh, ex- expected or well-known. But uh, but his livelihood came not just from playing golf, uh, but from making golf clubs and teaching um, and making golf balls, but not so much by the time you get to 19 over 1900 with a Haskell.
1: You know, I was reading where, let's go back to his, his formative years, I was reading where he was a licensed caddy. And he had a real love for the game. And, and that love led to uh, him not being welcome in school because he was toting around golf clubs. What <laughs> did you have to do to become a licensed caddy? And tell me about his formative years and, and where that love for the game came from.
0: Well, I mean, if you're familiar at all with the east coast of Scotland, which, I mean, I spent 21 years in St. Andrews, so I can speak from knowledge. Um it pervades just about everything. And when you talk about North Berwick, you've got North Berwick, you've got Gullen, you've you've got Dalmahoy, you've got Muirfield, you've got Musselboro, you know, you know, some of the greatest golf courses in the world are within a, a fifteen mile radius of where he grew up. And of course, uh, at that time, you know, it was not unusual for for young boys to go to work at a very, very early age to support the family to support the family and so he uh well now remember his dad was also a golf pro as was his older brother
1: right right
0: tom jr so they were already in the game and so he just kind of i guess you would just say he was born to the game and born into the game so he carried at Northbury, as you say he became licensed at age 11 then he was apprenticed to a club maker uh which again for a, a professional a golf professional that's where your money is made um and then uh, somehow he got the attention of somebody in rhode island who brought him over and uh, gave him his first job as a pro at a golf club in rhode island
1: now a lot of other golfers from the same region also came over here why was that why did everybody come over here
0: well for two reasons one uh, economics and two it being the brand new um pastime uh, in the United States like I say it really took off uh, around 1890 and you have a, a, a lot most of the, the touring pro Harry Varden came over uh, he, he won the US Open in 1900 uh, his only one but uh, he was sponsored by a golf club company to come do a tour and put on exhibitions the game was really beginning to grow there were no American born golf professionals at that time uh, so they had to come from somewhere in Scotland the home of golf which is where the game all began, uh, saw a real financial opportunity to pursue their life dream and their goals. And so you had pros coming from Carnoustie, a lot from St. Andrews, uh, from North Berwick, from Edinburgh, from Perth, um, all making their way to the United States because there were clubs springing up everywhere, and they needed pros. They needed somebody to teach their members how to play golf, and these were the Scots in
1: particular. And he really knew how to play. In fact, in 1902, he became the first player to hold two major championships here in the United States at the same time. He was already the U.S. Open winner. And as you had mentioned earlier, the Western Open was, I guess, considered a major. It was. Yeah. So, So he held both of them at the same time. He also became the first golfer to break 300 for 72 holes. How was golf perceived back then? And what kind of fame and or notoriety did he have?
0: Well, in the golfing world, and certainly among the elite, uh, the the golf clubs, they knew who he was. Baldur's Raw hired him as their head pro. Now, Baldur's Raw is is one of the top clubs in the country. Uh, But they hired him in 1998. He'd only been in the United States for two years. Uh, So apparently his reputation had already spread to such that he caught the attention of a good number of golf clubs. Uh, Like I say, he ended up at uh, the Philadelphia Cricket Club, which again is is an outstanding U.S. Open venue. Um, So he, he had made an immediate reputation, played a lot of exhibition matches, played a lot with Alex Smith, the fellow who came in second in 1901 and again in 1905 to him. They were good buddies. Um and they traveled around doing exhibitions. As a matter of fact when they went out to, to win the Western Open, they did a whole series of exhibition matches out in California. So they're they're trotting around. I mean he he was not someone who stayed at his own club and stayed in the in the pro shop. Uh he was out playing matches. He was out getting out and about and people recognized him and saw him and, and when they saw him play they said, Here is as good a golfer as ever lived and for in the United States context, he was the best, period.
1: As we said, he beat Alex Smith in 1901, finished his second in 1902. In 1903, he beat David Brown in a playoff. He won by five strokes over Gilbert Nichols in 1904. And then he returned myopia. returned to myopia in 1905 to once again beat Alex Smith. Talk about his dominance in the U.S. Open during that period and the competition he faced and the fact that, from what I read, he was extremely accurate. And if you think in the sense of the U.S. Open today, accuracy is truly what wins that tournament.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, you know, the U.S. Open... Traditionally, has made sure that uh, the fairways are tight, except for <laughs> except for Aaron Hills this past uh, Open U.S. Open Championship. Um, rough is is just that, and, and yeah, uh, uh, you've got to be accurate. You've got to be in the fairway, and that's one thing about uh, Willie Anderson. He was he was long, he was straight, uh, but he was accurate. And uh, you know, and when you're playing with with hickories. You know, if you miss hit with a with a hickory club, uh, it's liable to go anywhere. I know because I still play hickories, and uh, and you still on...
1: play hickories.
0: Oh yeah, oh I love hickory golf. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, of course I, I play with modern clubs as well. But whenever, I've got I've got two sets of hickories that that uh, are over a hundred years old. Uh, that would be contemporary to Willie Anderson.
1: And it's a different golf swing.
0: Well, it is. You again. It's uh, <laughs> as Bobby Jones says, "Wait for it." You know, you bring it back. You, you hesitate a little bit, and then you come through the ball. And a lot of people nowadays, when they swing hickory, they uh, think they're going to break the club. No, you're not going to break the club. It's it's very pliable, and uh, uh, so you can hit. But the thing is, if you miss hit, you really miss hit. Uh, and then if you're playing with the gutties, uh, it's easy for them to get out of shape. You know, you you hit them a few times, they'll put a few nicks in there and get a little misshapen. Or if you ever play with a balata ball. Mm -hmm. Uh, then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Uh, you hit one of those, you get a little smiley face in the cover. Well, Gettys didn't quite do that until the Haskell. Um, But they were not always in the round, as we say. Uh, So, yeah, so you've got to be one who can acclimate and adjust your game uh, according to both the ball and the club. Not so much the course at the ball in the club. And, of course, Willie was one of those who was an expert at that.
1: Well, you know, this leads me into my next set of questions, and it's, it's a thrill to know that you actually do play hickory-shafted clubs because you look at today's game and the fact that a guy like this year's U.S. Open champion, Brooks Kepka, hit a three-wood yeah. 379 yards <laughs> and reached yeah. a 681-yard hole with a three-wood and an iron. And compare it to the way Anderson played golf, it's a totally different game. These are two different games. Tell me about the game of golf back in the early 1900s. The equipment used, the course conditions were significantly different, too. How different was it to the game that we see and we play today?
0: Well, let me preface that a little bit. Because, you know, before the the gutty balls, which are, you know, a resin-type, rubber-type ball, there was the feathery. And, uh, and of course, all the clubs then uh, were very slim and, and um, low hickory shafted with persimmon heads. Um, and you could hit the ball, if you're a good golfer, even with the, the gutties, if you're a good golfer, maybe 170 yards off the tee. However, uh, the longest recorded drive with a feathery was 1836 September, the old course St. Andrews, 14th hole, 361 yards.
1: Wow. With a
0: feathery using a wooden-chapted and wooden-headed club. Wow. I might say that the weather might have been blowing what we say <laughs> yeah. is blowing a hoolie. Uh, strong winds, and it, late September the ground might have been a little hard, but still 361 yards. Uh, but it is a completely different game because you have to, I think, in, in, in especially around the turn of the century when Willie was playing, it was all about course management strategy. How do you play? How do you need to get here? And if you, if you look at the golf courses that were built at the time in the golden age of of golf course architect, it was Donald Ross, uh, Seth Raynor, these guys, A.W. Tillinghast. You start looking at their courses, they designed courses so that there are multiple approaches, multiple ways to play a whole. And so it was all about course management and, and, that because you know if if I know I can only hit a drive 170 yards maybe 200 yards on a good day uh, and if I'm hitting a nine iron uh, of course at that time we're talking a niblick if I can hit a niblick 80 yards then okay I need to look at the golf course and see how I need to position myself um, and so it's it's more strategic than it is about bombing you can you can bomb the ball nowadays and and, and of course they keep the rough so narrow normally, except for the U.S. Opens, that um, she can play the ball, and with the wedges, she can play the ball from anywhere. But then, the fairways were not that smooth. The greens certainly were not rolling like they are today.
1: Some greens um, didn't even have grass on them. They were sand greens. With They, they oil. should have been called sand.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. They they were, as a matter of fact, Harold Irwin said he learned to play on sand greens, where they put a little oil just to keep the sand down. Wow. Uh, But those are nice and smooth, I will say that. Um, But you have to, uh, well here in the museum we've got uh, a replica of a a green from about 1900. And we have some Haskell golf balls and we have hickory clubs that our guests can can use to see exactly what it was like. And um, A, they're amazed at how smooth it comes off the face of the club for one thing. But then to see it roll and take a sharp left or a sharp right or or stop, um, they said, whoa. And it just lets you know just how good these guys had to be um, to play the way they did. Because it was nothing like it is today.
1: So where Willie learned in, in North Berwick compared to what he found here, were the courses similar? Were the conditions similar? How, how, how did the, the courses differ from there to here during the days of Willie Anderson?
0: Okay, well, Willie Anderson, coming from North Berwick, and I don't know if you've ever been over to Scotland or certainly played on the, the Lynx courses over
1: there. Someday, someday.
0: Oh, all right, well, well I'm, I'm glad to say the old course in St. Andrews is my home course.
1: <laughs> I've played it a lot. A great place to call your home course.
0: It is, but uh, Lynx courses are by the seaside, uh, usually on the arable land, you know, between, well, the, the ground between the coast and the arable land. Uh, so it's always rough. It's uh, always windblown. Very, very few trees. Um, a lot of sand. Uh, and so uh, the the turf would be tough. But it'd also be very low in the sense because wind windswept and, and uh, usually grazed by sheep, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, and then you get over to America where you've got parkland courses. So you've got a lot of trees. You've got a different type of grass altogether. Um, so it would be, you know, Extremely difficult to make an adjustment. I always look at it this way because I, I I love Lynx golf. Lynx golf is bump and run. You can run it up. You can you have to play it low under the wind. Uh, you know what we would call in Tiger Woods parlance, you know stingers. You hit a lot of stingers. Sure. Um, whereas American golf, especially for parkland courses, is more like target golf. You know you you hit you expect the ball to stop and sit on the green. Uh, It it didn't do that, uh, certainly in Scotland. So for these guys coming over here, well, it's like Phil Mickelson. Uh, Phil said he had to learn how to play Lynx golf, and it took him a few years before he finally won the Open and the Scottish Open. Uh, But it took him a while to learn how to play a different style of game altogether. Uh, Well, that's what Willie Anderson and all these guys coming over. But I will say this, these guys who were coming over were also ones who designed golf courses. I mean, Willie Anderson designed a couple of golf courses. Interesting. Uh, so it would go back to their knowledge, but you have to look at the lay of the land. Uh, but completely different game.
1: You know, um, there was a time, even during the time of Byron Nelson and, and Ben Hogan, where they were club professionals when they weren't out on tour. But a lot of times they were just club professionals in name. It was a, a great honor for a club to say, so-and-so is the head professional here. But I don't that's think right. that's the way it was when Willie Anderson was playing. No. He he truly had to work at that club to right. earn a living. Why is it, and, and, you, and you mentioned it back when we started the interview, um, that he was the head professional at several clubs. Why is it that he moved around so much? Well, you know,
0: that's, that's kind of one of the anomalies that we really don't know, other than he was in great demand. Everybody wanted him, uh, A, because he was the U.S. Open champion, for one thing, which is the national championship, but, two, his style, although he never produced, like Byron Nelson or Ben Hogan, you know, golf instructional books, um, he was well-known as a good teacher. Uh, and so he would go to a club, and of course, if another club came along and said, "Look, um, you know, we will pay you more," and, and bear in mind that his, you know, both his father and his older brother came over, and they were club professionals. Uh, so it was kind of a, a family industry, as it were. But sure. no, they had to make their li- they made their living not playing golf. They made their living selling golf clubs, making golf clubs, and teaching members how to play. So I would imagine. That he had uh, roaming feet, for one thing, because he liked to travel quite a lot. Sure. But also, um, had to go where the money was.
1: And, and And speaking of going to where the money was, as you said earlier, they didn't win a lot of money on the pro tour. So no. he played in a lot of exhibitions. How right. common were exhibitions back then? And just how much money could a guy win for taking home top prize?
0: Well, much like it is today, you have two aspects for the money. One is certainly the, uh, the purse, which was not very much because most clubs couldn't afford to, to put a lot of money up for that because the tournaments were run pretty much by the individual golf clubs. Um, but a lot came on the side bets. You know, Their sponsors would put money on them, and they'd get a proportion of uh, their backers, as it were. So that was important. Um, and it's, and it's, it's always been that way, but uh, again, bear in mind at the time Willie Anderson was coming along, the amateurs were the elite of golf, not the pros. The pros were considered, the uh, the working men who, who filled the gap of teaching us how to play and, and they would have their tournaments. So when you had the first U S open, uh, actually it was on the back of the first U S amateur. So the professionals were kind of second tier initially. Hmm. certainly when Willie played and it wasn't until, uh, you have Gene Saracen, Walter Hagen, uh, come along and kind of elevate the status of the professional game. And of course, Bobby Jones had a lot to do with that, but he remained amateur, as you know, sure. Uh, but it wasn't until Gene Saracen, Walter Hagen, and that group came on that the professionals began to overtake, uh, the status of the amateur. Uh, so he was, uh, uh, always in the shadows so far as elite golf goes. But if they ever needed a pro or if they needed somebody to teach them how to play and to be there, that was Willie Anderson.
1: So he won, you know, the U S open four times. He won the Western open four times. How dominant was he on the pro tour and what were some of the other tournaments he, he, he competed in and won how, just how dominant was Willie Anderson? Well, like I say,
0: most other other than like I say the US Open and the Western Open, he did play in the Florida Open and he did play in a few of the others. Um but by and large, um well, he he did dominate. I mean that's that's simple, simply put. At the time there wasn't the, the own the first known or arguably the first American born golf professional was a fellow by the name of, of John Shippen up at Shinnecock Hills. And he was African American. Hmm. Uh, All the other players, pretty much exclusively on the the professional side, um, were Scots and Englishmen. Very, very few Americans in there. You had C.B. McDonald from Chicago, um, who, because of him, pretty much started the the USGA. He was American, uh, but he had spent time in St. Andrews with uh, old and young Tom Morris and came back and built Chicago Um, but he stayed amateur. He was always amateur. So in the pro ranks, it was exclusively Scots and Englishmen who had come over to play. Uh, So they were playing with guys they knew by and large. Uh, Not that many uh, Americans until Johnny uh, McDermott, uh, uh, 1911 and 1912, uh, U.S. Opens. He won both of those, and he was an American player.
1: You know, he led a, a, a great life on the course, and he enjoyed a good time off it. Unfortunately, though, it didn't last very long. He passed away at the young age of 31. A lot of different theories on what happened to him from epilepsy to alcoholism to a brain tumor. But in the end, I believe the official cause of death was ALS. Could you talk about uh, his, his, his last years? I heard, you know, read where he really was suffering.
0: He was, but you know, he didn't. He didn't let on. I mean, that's. I think that's to his credit. You know, he um, he did suffer quite a lot. Um, he off the court, like I say, on the course, he was very uh, focused. Off the course, he was known to be very convivial, uh, jolly, liked to drink, like his like his tipple, uh, a bit unconventional by and large. But um, but in his latter years, yeah, he. Um, uh, I don't want to say he suffered in silence. But- because he, he actually continued to compete uh, pretty much right up until he, he died. And that's why there's so much controversy, because it wasn't a lingering death in that sense, you know, of, of him really being sick and then being around. He, he competed, uh, didn't finish some competitions. But uh, that's why you say, well, some was, um, you know, uh, arteriosclerosis or epilepsy or alcoholism, because he did like his tipple or brain tumor, because it was uh, he didn't let on. Just how sick he really was, and so he he uh, in essence suffered it out. And for that, you you know you have to I
1: want to say maybe give him a little credit um,
0: because he didn't he didn't share his illness with anybody.
1: Always a shame when someone goes that young. It's it's incredible, and you know back then we didn't know a whole lot about arterial sclerosis. Heck, we didn't That's know right. a lot about it. When, you know, Lou Gehrig passed
0: away. That's right. That's right. Well, it's, it's something because, you know, Alex Smith said that, uh, you know, had he lived, there's no question that he would have won
1: more U.S. Opens
0: than anybody ever living, and it would never have been matched. And, uh, you know, he might be onto something there.
1: Um, yeah, he almost won five in a row.
0: That's right. That's exactly right.
1: Yeah, he did win four, though, and yet when we talk about the greats of the game from Jones and Sarazen to Nelson and Hogan to Palmer and Nicholas and Woods, we barely utter the name Willie Anderson. Why is that? And just how important is Willie Anderson to the history of golf?
0: Well, he set the standard, and that's about the best way we can leave it. He set the standard for what it meant to be a U.S. Open champion.
1: Is there anything else we should know about Willie Anderson?
0: Well, I think there's one little thing that, that's kind of kind of unique and kind of fun. At the uh, 1903 U.S. Open at Baltimore. uh, of course, Willie played and he won. But his father and his brother also played in that championship. So that's the only time we know that father, son, and son wow. uh, played in a, in a U.S. Open championship or in a major. Now, we do know old and young Tom Morris, 1868. Right. Young Tom, old Tom was in second. But uh, 1903 U.S. Open, Bartles-Raw, Willie and his father and brother, Tom Sr. and Tom Jr., uh, all three played in that one championship. And I think it's pretty cool.
1: It definitely is. Tony, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed this.
1: Think about it for a moment. If there was a golfer today who went out and won three straight U.S. Open championships – Think about the magnitude of such an achievement. Yet, when the name Willie Anderson is mentioned, so few know who he is or have ever even heard of him. I guess we were still in our infancy as a nation to revere sports heroes like we do today. How else can you explain it? Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more about sports forgotten heroes, please visit our website, sportsfh.com. There, you can find out more about Willie Anderson, check out past podcasts, and see who we have lined up for future podcasts. You can also find out how to ask a question of a future guest, or learn how to support the show, and we can sure use your support. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we'll look back at the career of the all-time home run leader for the San Diego Padres. No, it wasn't Dave Winfield. It's Nate Colbert. Thanks again to today's guest, Tony Parker. And for more information about the World Golf Hall of Fame and Museum, visit worldgolfhalloffame.org. That's Fame.org. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.